Good evening and welcome to the Shia for this evening, Parshas Shlach. So we'll go straight into our question number one, and that's a Hemshech, a continuation from what we had discussed last week about, um, it came up about Berin Afoshes, uh, so one of our listeners in the United States who listens to the recording asks this question, which comes up every year in Hayem Yoim, is Hayem Yoim of Yudayin Adosheni, and that's that in, uh, says, when you say Tilim, you pronounce Kol Mayonebuch, and when you say Benching, so you say Kol Mayonebuch, and so this, all right, so this, this question, why should there be that difference? And truthfully, I never really uh, had an answer. I'm going to, but I'm going to suggest to you what, what, a little bit more about it. We've gone through this before. Where the coil is kind of connected to the next word. Coil is like it's separated. Before answering this question. I'm going to ask a more basic question. Why do we say Livne Koirach before benching? What's why should that chapter of Tilim? And perhaps more or less basic, you can choose. What is the uh, meaning of that sentence? What's the meaning of that sentence? So before you start talking about the Koil and Kol, what's the sentence mean? So one thing at a time. Why do we say this? So there is the idea that during Birchas HaMozin, we have a focus on Eretz Yisrael and on Yerushalayim in particular. And we can commemorate, we can trigger our memories, focus on Yerushalayim, either in a way of happiness or in a sad way. al is Bovel is focusing on Yerushalayim in a weeping way, in a sad way. Is in a more joyous way. It's a song, Shira Malas. It's another Mizmer which is talking about your Shalim. So it's a similar idea, like Shira Malas, focusing on your Shalim in a positive way. And that's connected to Birchas HaMozin, which don't forget, I emphasized this before, the whole Birchas HaMozin has got to do with Eretz Yisrael. Don't forget, V'ochalto, V'savoto, V'irachto, as Hashem Alakecha, what? Al Ha'oretz HaTevo. So Shebenching has got to do with Eretz Yisrael. And so it makes sense that the focus of Eretz Yisrael in Shalim, it has got its special uh, mention in the lead up to Benching and obviously in Benching too. So that's why we're saying Livnei Kech all together. The Shor and Kachalim, um, what do those words mean? So I saw in one sefer about six different or six or more, nine Pirushim that have a Shor and Kachalim. Now, Shorim means the singers. What are the Chalalim? Does Chalalim mean a lot of dancing? Like a uh, Does it mean uh, playing with timbrels? So I'm also got another translation of Mochel. So there are various Pirushim and this Rashorim Kachalim. One of the Pirushim which I'm, I'm, I'm sharing with you now is from the Meiri. The Meiri lived about 700 years ago and his Pirush was um, only discovered in full in the 
perhaps in the last century, although it was, he is mentioned in the Shitta Mukhabetsas, etc. He is mentioned, they say he's known to have existed, but his, the manuscript uh, of his Pirishan on the whole of Shas was, was, has been published in the, within the, the last century. Right. I see he also has a Pirishan Telem. So let's read his words. Oynefarish, shekol mayonai boch, hu mamar ha'om, it's the, the, the uh, who says kol mayonai boch, it's the people are saying this. V'choyolim, the meaning of choyolim, The choilim, he says, miloshin chil kayuleido, like screaming out in pain, like a woman giving birth. Kaloima to say, shorim retonaloma hamashorim reloiv simchosum, the oshro. So you've got the shorim, the singers who are happy and joyous. They've got wealth. And then you've got those who are crying out in pain, the roiv da the onion, because of their anxieties and their worries and their poverty, kulom mayonom boch. They all have their focus on you. On the word mayonom is also, does it mean like the word mayayim, which means my innards, or does it mean uh, focus? Whichever way, but it, it, it certainly means that they've got the shorim, that, that the, the, the way Meiri is learning, that they, it is their focus. The shorim and the cholim, their focus is on you. So now, until the Meiri, we say we the word kol in this post means kol mayonai, the entire mayonai, my entire focus. Here the Emiri says, Shorim Kecholim Kulom. So the coil is referring to the Shorim and the Cholalim. Therefore, it's it makes more sense to read it coil rather than kol, because it's not all of Mayonai, but it's all, all, all of the it's, it's less literal pshat, but that's the way the Meiri is learning. Now, so therefore, we've got we've got a legitimate meaning pirush, which should be koil uh, I don't see why that's associated to benching to more than intilim. I just my poshta pshat is of the hayemiyim. You follow what's written in the siddha. You're davening, and then Siddha it says with the kolom, it's kol. You're saying in Tilim, it's with a comment, say kol. You follow what's written in the Siddha. But, but that, that's, that's, that's how we should behave. Why is it written in, this, in the Siddha? Indifferent. It's, 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 it's a sharing with us another way of understanding the possible. And so it's, it's legitimate to have, to, to, to be aware. Some, someone's asked me, why is it, for example, in the Alter Rebbe Siddur, he says, Loisoser, and then in brackets, Nusach Acher Altosir. And there's about seven or eight different places where the Alter Rebbe brings um, two Pirushim, two Gersoids. What's the reason for him giving two Gersoids? After all, you're only going to do one. But it is legitimate that you should know, whilst you're saying this Pshat, but you should know that there's another Pshat, and then it's okay to have both Pirushim in mind. That's why he brought those the other Pirush, to have that other way in mind too. Okay, let's move on. Um, question, common question, hot weather, lots of sun, people asking about wearing sunglasses on Shabbos in the, in the Rishos Harabim. 
Now, what about glasses? Never mind sunglasses. We, everyone who, very, very, very few people today don't wear glasses on Shabbos out of Frumkite. This is something which had been discussed in, you know, for, for the last few hundred, yeah, a few hundred years. The glasses have evolved. They used to be um, less stable now. They, but the, well, the glasses are not garments. They don't keep you warm. They don't give you cover. But they do fall into the category of what we call tachshit. They are an accessory. Uh, in when I teach the halachas of in class, I teach um, the halachas of carrying on Shabbos or not carrying on Shabbos. I point to put out. I point out that the word in Yiddish, trogen, can mean trogen a mantle, and trogen a a peckle, or in French, porte manteau, porte en valise. So it's the same word used for carrying for wearing. So how do you, if I've got a pendant? Uh, around my neck, and it's got a pen. Am I wearing the pen, or am I carrying the pen? So, so there, there is this uh, subtlety. How do you define carrying and wearing? So broadly speaking, I would say that carrying means I don't have my fulfillment now. I have my fulfillment later. I'm having it with me so that I should have it later. Wearing is that you have your fulfillment here and now. I know there are going to be exceptions to that in halacha, even wearing a raincoat because it might be made later, or to carry it to wear another coat because someone else wants a coat. I know, but broadly speaking, I'm saying that's to define are you wearing or are you carrying? So, wearing reading glasses to shul is carrying, that's not allowed. But when you're wearing glasses, char or for long distance, etc., they are actually being worn they're not you're not carrying the glasses because you're not wearing them because you need them later you have them on you because they are enhancing your management of your skills of you know walking the street etc uh if that's the explanation why so sunglasses would become i'd call them a tachshit which is legitimate to wear on shabbos so now let's come now to the um to the sunglasses the same logic would apply to sunglasses too that they are enabling you to be comfortable as you're walking in in the street where there's uh, exposed to the strong sunlight. Having said that, the consensus of poskim, contemporary poskim, is not to wear sunglasses on Shabbos in Erish Surabim. I'm reading here from the Shmir Shabbos Kilchosa. Mishkefei Shemesh Regilim, regular sunglasses. Shadam Arkev Lahogin Al Enoch. The person would put on his eyes to protect from harm from the sun rays. One should not wear them, including, he says, those clip-on um, glasses, which would clip onto your regular glasses. So what I've seen, having done a little bit of uh, looking around, is the poskim don't uh, um, they, they, they say not to wear sunglasses. Their main concern is that you may come to slip them off. Um, let's say it's change of weather, etc. So you may be tempted to slip them off. And as a result, you don't wear uh, sunglasses or shabbos. If you are particularly prone to, to the, uh, the sun rays, well, then the likelihood is that you'll have a pair of glasses which have got um, light sensory change of color. And those may be worn on Shabbos, 
as what we call them, photogray, whatever. Those are maybe worn on Shabbos, and the reason being that the coloration, that the change of color, is something which is not permanent. It's going to become more intense in sunlight, and as you go inside, after a couple of seconds, it's going to start, you know, fading away. Let's move on. Okay, so someone asked me this week, could I explain the parameters of kibud av voim of a ger to their biological parents? Obviously, the ger has made very significant choice um, going away from the culture of his parents. And now, so what's the relationship now? So here we have Shukhan Aruch. It's in the end of Hilchus kibud av voim simen reish mem alaf in day. A gay may not curse his father, not to strike him, not to uh, abuse him. Why should a gay not do so? Because there will be the perception, aha, when he was a guy, he had to respect his father. Now he became more religious, therefore he can be more um, abusive. That doesn't doesn't look right. So there, there, then there's another point which is which is brought in Poskim. The Rambam doesn't. Isn't it? Rambam says kibud ktsas, a little bit, little bit of respect um, in some way. Reb Moshe Feinstein in Nigras Moshe um, says there should be some kind of at least there's a term in, in Hebrew kofri toiva, which means that you are um, you are uh, neglecting, how do you say, um, like you, you don't, you're showing lack of appreciation, an ingrate. To, to, so what there should be, but the degree of not to give the impression that you're ungrateful. Bearing in mind, one of the reasons for the mitzvah of Kibbut Avraim, one of the uh, brought in, in, in Rishonim, is the, uh, the parent has brought you into this world. Usually, the parent has also spent a lot of effort in bringing the child up and feeding them, etc. But even if not, but the parents had the choice to bring the child into the world, and therefore, one should be show appreciation. My whole existence is is thanks to my parents. Um, so there is this, even in the in the case of a gear, there is an union of appreciation, and certainly not to be uh, coming across as being ingrateful or ungrateful. Um, someone asked me. What about when uh, there's a non-Jewish father and a Jewish mother? What's the story then? So this is not discussed in Shulchan Aruch, but I would imagine it's the similar logic. It shouldn't be, when being, you know, a Shemitah mitzvah shouldn't be an excuse for disrespect. <coughs> Let's move on. So here someone uh, sent me a picture of a pendant which his wife received as a gift um, some years ago. It's probably made of silver, perhaps of gold. And it's uh, she and Dalad Yud, which is obviously one of the seven names of Hashem, Shainam Nimchokim. So in case, in case you think pendants of names of Hashem is something new, so here I have a text from, to say the Mishnah Savrom, and he writes the following. Those silver plates which are put on, which children should wear around their necks, upon which are etched holy names of Hashem, 
upsukim, even if they're done through engraving, and even if they were done by a goy, they need to be put in Gnisa, in, in Shemus. Source, Rambam, and then Maharaj Damar, Bishmul of Modena, and Devar Shmuel. That's Shmuel Abuhav, who lived in, in Amsterdam, I believe, uh, about 400 and something years ago. Um, and the logic is that those plates of silver were made for inscribing the, the Azkoros, the, the name. And therefore, it becomes the whole silver plate becomes kind of subsidiary to the Hashem's name. And therefore, you can't start clipping off the silver around it um, because all of the whole, the whole plate has become consecrated, so to speak, to the Shem. And therefore, you'd have to take that whole silver plate and put it in Gnisa and not to snip off bits and pieces. Okay, so that's so the concept of having a something holy and, I guess, parents wanting to give their child protection uh, and therefore making such a, a pendant. So it's, it's, an, oh, it's, it's happened many, many years ago. Still felt that this in this case, the fellow is asking, Can I? I don't, my wife doesn't like it. Can we give it into a jeweler to have it? Um, and they'll use it, one they'll probably melt it down. So, two things number one, the Shem is not written in a normal sequence, it's not written in the order of Shindal Jud. Therefore, I don't see that you should have in the um, you should have a Kedusha Hashem. Incidentally. When a soifer writes Hashem's name, he has to write it in the correct sequence. He has to write first the yud and then the he and then the over the he, etc. Um, but that's that's a separate union. That's the way he writes it. But here we're talking about the actual presentation of the letters is shaloika sidron, and therefore I don't see it has kedusha. Here comes another very interesting question: Do does a letter on its own suspended in the air? Is that called writing? Or is writing only when letters appear on the surface? So, for example, the, uh, you've got, you remember the Aleph based soup years ago? Osem used to have an Aleph based soup. I haven't seen it in years. But is there a question of eating those Aleph based lakshan on Shabbos? So, as far as I remember, it's not a problem. Because letters, oisius parachos, if letters are just floating around and not attached to a surface, that they're not, not called writing. This also relates to playing Scrabble on Shabbos, which we're not going to go into the whole discussion. They're just loose letters on a surface. Um, so, um, so there are poskim who say that loose letters, which are not on the surface, not called writing altogether. Therefore, that according to this, that wouldn't this wouldn't be called writing. Very interesting. What this hinges on is there's a discussion in, in Gemara and Toysfus and Machlokas Rashi Toysfus when you put on your with the 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 sheen of the tefillin. So the sheen is uh, is, a, is a letter on the surface of the of the shalosh. The dalad is the way the knot is made at the back of the uh, in the neck, and the yud is in the 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 ritzuas of the shalyad. Are they called oisius? So, you know, there's she and Dalajud. Well, then, if it's she and Dalajud, are you allowed to un untie the knot? So, Toysu says it doesn't have the status of Hashem, and therefore, it's not a problem of erasing Hashem's name. 
and this is kind of underpinned with this idea that the Dalit of made of Yuritsuis doesn't really become a Shem because it's not writing on a surface. Um, so using the, these two Svaras together, number one, I think on its own that's enough. That um, just um, that, that because it's not Allah Seder, it's not a shame altogether. But separately, I also have this idea that if it's not on a surface, that may not be considered ksav. But here, if you have the notes, I've given a reference to Encyclopedia Talmudis, volume um, Lamed Base, where on the entry of ksav, and there this point whether oisius parches, in other words, without a surface. Whether that's called writing is actually seems to be a discussion in Poskim, it's not unanimous. Okay, but the first point I think is adequate. Uh, you would be allowed to give it to a um, silversmith, and um, a silversmith will do what they want with it. Let's move on. Okay, so um, I got this question from a Shaliach in Australia. My brother is a Moyle, he lives in Australia. He was in his place and they came to a discussion about mikvahs. And my brother told him, he the shriach wants to check with me, uh, he, the, that I take the view of him, there's no, uh, no rush to change the rainwater periodically. And uh, to use the English expression, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Um, and my concern is that when you want to see, I'm, 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 when you have a mikvah, the main element of the mikvah is obviously the rainwater. You, so you have, I'm given here, the, shown here on the picture, the structure of a Chabad, of the Rebbe Shab style of a Boer Agabe Boer. Then very often you'll have another, uh, what we call Oitsa, you'll have another reservoir of rainwater. And when you want to, change the the rainwater in the in the boy of the mikvah you'd um, then be able to release water from that reservoir and it should come in um right, but it, how to release that water uh into the mikvah if you don't know what you're doing you can actually be making, making it worse i remember once by kinder sashluchim gave me a cat it's not how bad uh, but he's uh he did and he um, spoke at the Kiddush HaShluchim. He's an expert on mikvahs, amongst other things. He lives in Borough Park. And he told of a story. There was a place where there was a mikvah. Well, there were several mikvahs. And the Rav boasts how he makes sure so that all the water, when, he, when they refill the mikvahs, he makes sure there's a hamshach. There's an idea that the water should be, be trickling over a, a porous surface. So it has to be life. So this fellow, listen to this. He made, he took a shoebox, and he put in the shoebox. He filled it with sand, and then he put whatever the box was made of plastic, but it was a box which he filled with sand, and all the water which would go into the mikvah would pour into this box of sand and then overflow into the mikvah. He had effectively made all the water going to the mikvah possible because the box is is, a, is like a bucket. So all the water he so he he was oh, making making hamshocha. He had ruined the mikvah by by using his his bucket with sand. So if you know what you do, you can actually make it worse. So that's that's one one piece of advice. But then let me explain something. We have here the basic rainwater. 
a, a regular mikveh, not Chabad, will have a pool of rainwater side by side to what we call the Boirat field where people actually immerse. Obviously, when people go into the mikveh, the water level rises and water will flow from, if the, if the opening is, uh, if the hashok is open, so there will be water flowing from the warm Boirat into the hashok, into the, in, in the mikshamim. As that person goes out, well then the water will go down. So then water from the side boy will go into the, the Barat Vila. That's going to be, and so uh, there's going to be exchange of water uh, inevitably. And that's, they, they, so there is this concern that there's some shittas in showing in particular the Raibid, who is a concern that if the original water has been exchanged for other water, and that, that's, so then, and you don't have 40 of the original rainwater, so then you have a problem. The most poskim don't worry about this. As I say, most mikvahs which are side by side do not have a mechanism to protect for this. The Chabad style of having Beir al-Gabe Beir does have a natural protection because the water at the bottom will stay at the bottom and on the top, and usually also the, the fact that the water in the upper level is uh, warm water, the water at the bottom level is cold water, so that also encourages that it should not be an interchange of the water beneath to the water above. So really we could relax and feel confident that there is no exchange of water. Nevertheless, there is the niggling concern that there may be a little bit of exchange between the upper and the lower. And therefore, so some, some Rabbanim are recommending you should change the rainwater once a year, let's say. I'll tell you, besides my, if it ain't broken, don't fix it um, concern, I, I have a fundamental question here. What statistics are you building on? Why are you telling me to exchange that water once a year? Why not once a month? You don't know. You're saying, well, there is a little bit of exchange. You don't know statistics. I'm going to give you two examples of uh, dealing with statistics. One example is, we know that for a, a street to become a Rishosferabimdairaisa, so there's the opinion of Rashi and many Rishoyim, that it's, if it has 600,000 daily users, that's a Rishosferabimdairaisa. I'm not telling you anything new at the moment. My question to you, where does the Sishinri become? Digli Midbo, that was the population which used the public area between the camp of the Eden to where Moshe Rabbeinu lived. Okay, so there were 600,000. Yeah, um, there were no younger people. What about the Bnei Levi? They weren't counted from 20 to 60. They were counted from 30 days old. Yeah? So we don't know exactly. Um, what about the women? So why didn't you say, why do you say 660, 600,000? Say 2 million. Why stop by 2 million? Why, why, after 3 million, after one and a half, we don't know. We don't have a figure. We have one figure, and that is Shishim Ribri, and that's what we work with. We work with the statistic which we have, even though it's obviously not totally accurate, but that's what we have, and that's what we work with. Similarly, I'm going to give you another example. I have here a, a uh, let's say, a, a, a knife, and this was dipped into a, a, um, a, bore, a, bore, uh, a, a pot of hot chazer, of lard. It was dipped in. 
took it out. So now it's trafe, yeah? Five minutes later, I dip it into a bowl of chicken soup. Hot chicken soup. So now is the chicken soup kosher? So we're going to start saying, well, if the chicken soup has got 60 times the mass of this knife or the, the part which went into the water, into the soup, then well, we so then we'll say it's bottle of shishim. If it doesn't have 60 times the mass of this um, piece of metal, then the chicken soup will be trade. Yeah, well, no. Now I'm, I'm going to ask you, this was put into the chazer. How much chazer is there in this mass of metal? There's metal here. How much chazer can it, it, This is, let's say, a, a two cubic um, uh, centimeters of metal. Is it solid full of lard? There might be a fraction of it, but how big is that fraction? Is it a quarter? Is it a tenth? I don't know. So I can't work with that. I'm going to have to therefore say, I know there's a piece of metal. It's absorbed chazer. I don't know how much. I'm going to work with the data which I have. So I'm just giving you two examples of where I can't work with a nebulous data. And therefore, to say that because the water in the lower one inevitably it trickles up and down, I don't, I, I don't know. I can't work with that. And okay, um, just one more point is that um, I don't know whether we discussed this before, but there was a Lubavitcherov in who's, who was a couple of years in uh, Buenos Aires, I believe, and he had a conversations with a professor who's into physics and trying to explore this idea does there does the lower water and the upper water interchange and there was a he sent in his correspondence to the Rebbe this professor was did various experiments with colors with ink going up and down and the Rebbe says uh, the Rebbe rejected it uh, again and again on different different levels one of these things very interesting says you put a cup of you have a cup of tea and you put a tea, tea bag and you leave the tea bag, you don't move the tea bag. You'll see that the brown will stay at the bottom and the top will be clear. It doesn't interchange. It just stays put, um, at least for a reasonable amount of time. I don't remember the, the, the detail. And certainly when there's a, a, a wall separating them, there's just a little opening. So the interchange is, is, is really uh, not such a... Now, I want to add one more point. I know that most of the people here don't deal with operating with voice, but it's, it's uh, many of the stuff I was talking about is mostly, it's just like a casual interest. But here we've got the guidance of the Rebbe Rashab to Rabbi Yaakov Landau um, about building mikvos. This is actually in Seik Hamin Hogim, and the Rebbe Rashab talks about having uh, this uh, floor with a manhole cover, and then he says about um, when you have the rainwater coming in, he wants to have that there should be an overflow of the rainwater above the, the dividing floor. So there should be, in other words, rainwater in the upper level too. Now, just to keep it simple as much as I can, there's a din of how do you make possible water, how do you make it kosher? Perhaps we've touched it before. One is through hashoka, that the two bodies of water touch kiss that makes them kosher there's another method which is called zriya when the non-kosher water is implanted into the kosher water into the car then it makes it kosher zriya. okay now in the looking at this mikvah on the picture the Chabad style you pour water into the upper pool how does it become kosher 
because it's connected by that hole. Yeah, in the manhole, you see there's a, there's a hole over there. Whatever the size of the hole, doesn't matter. There's a, there's a hole somewhere in the floor. Whatever, there's the, the, the two bodies attaching. Very good. But that's Hashoka that doesn't have the other form, the quality of Zriya. So the Rebbe Rashab says, you know what? When you fill this with rainwater, I want the rainwater to be a couple of inches above the surface. So when you're going to pour the rainwater into the mikvah, into the Bayratvila, it's going to fall into rainwater. So when your city water is going to fall into the mikvah, it's going to be a Zriya. Not only Ashok is going to have a Zriya. Now, the Rebbe Rashab evidently was again and again asking about the weather. He looked at, had a barometer on his desk. He wanted to know there's enough rain. Why did he need to have so much, you know, why was there need for such a supply of rainwater? Was it because he wanted the mikvah to be emptied and, re and, and refilled, as some suggest? I have a different suggestion. Not because he wanted to empty the whole Beratach, but he wanted that every time you empty the mikvah and you want to clean it, so you're going to have to empty it till the bottom, till, in other words, till the bottom of the upper, le upper level. Before you refill it with city water, you're going to have to have a couple of inches of rainwater each time, and you'll have to know how to do it, how to pull out the bug, etc. So in order to, every time you refill the mikvah after cleaning it, you have to have a few inches of rainwater, so you need to have a generous supply of rainwater in your reserve tank. So that's why he was concerned and conscientious that there should be an ample supply of rainwater, not for switching the but for the maintenance of the, the to be able to have the facility of Zriya. Our Rebbe introduced a, an alternative to the Rebbe Rashab's idea. And the Rebbe writes in a letter, if you could work out that the, the tap water should fall straight into the hole, into the connecting hole. In this way, you'll achieve Zriya. So instead of the Rebbe Rashab's method of having a couple of inches of rainwater above the uh, floor, the Rebbe has an alternative. You don't need to have a, a, um, a, a few inches every time, which is, as you can understand, each time it's emptying it and etc. It's it's a just uh, it's it's a difficult thing to uh, to achieve. Instead, you have the the tip tap water falling directly into the neck of Hashoka. And in this way, you have Zaria. Okay. Now, I must tell you that Rav Pevsner, Rav Hilo Pevsner, was very uh, uneasy about this Takon of the Rebbe. Um, because if you were trying to uh, avoid the exchange of the water, of the original rainwater, so the last thing you want to have is the water pressure you know, jetting onto, the, uh, onto that hole, which is going to cause an interchange of water. I mean, this is a good question, and um, I know someone has done a lot of research to, to answer that question. But meanwhile, that's that's the, you know these, these are the, the facts which, which we know. So um, to sum up, is there an urgency to change the water once a year? I don't see the urgency. Um, if you know what you're doing, so and you want to uh, you want to uh, exchange it exchange it because to hate. But if you're not you're not so and etc. I don't think you should feel guilty that you haven't changed the water in 10 years. Um, you know, and as, as, as is well known, there are mikvahs, there have been mikvahs which you know, in, in a generation ago, 
which they had the same water for, for many, many decades. They didn't, they didn't, decades. All right, let's move on. I know I might get some stick for this, but fine. Um, I must say, just to finish off, both Rabbi Beryl Levin in his book, Amik Voice, and Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Fegelstock of Buenos Aires, uh, they both do recommend exchange the water, um, but they, again, they don't give clear guidelines what should be the uh, definition when you have to do it. Okay. One of our listeners heard that, you know, we talked about not rolling a sefetera berabim. And this is halacha in Shechon Aruch. One should avoid rolling the sefer in the presence of the tzibur because it basically you're, it's disrespectful. You're asking them to twiddle your thumbs while you while you're doing it. Um, now, what's what's quite remarkable though is that on Shabbos Shkolim, which is always not far from Parshas Kisisa, um, so in, in, in the Parshas Hashavua. Is, is very close. Um, and yet we take out two sforim, two sefer for Pasha's Shkolim, which is interesting. Why? I mean, it takes to, so um, if that's the case, even just the rolling of three, four um, sheets of, of, of the of parchment is already considered a tircha de tibura. So then he's asking a question on Mondays and Thursdays. He, they have a, a sefer which they use Mondays and Thursdays, and on the next Monday you have to roll it to the next cetera. So does he have to take out that sefer in advance to put it to the right place so they shouldn't have to roll it just those couple of of, uh, of uh, sheets? That was his question. So having done a bit more research today, I see that some rabbonim actually for, um, they uh, when it came to Pasha Shkolim, they said you don't need to take out two sefer Torah, take out one. Because the, there's no Tirchad Zibur is right nearby. But certainly the Minigistral is not so. The Minigistral is to take out two Sifatayra. By and large, that's the Minigistral. Well, you could say it's because, you since when you do a different parsha from after, usually we take out another Sifatayra. So don't do Kunsim, we take out one for Parsha's column also, although it's really not so necessary. But having said that, Coming to the Monday and the Thursday and having to um, to, to um, worry about rolling it um, a couple of sheets. It manages a few seconds. I don't think it's, it's necessary to worry about it. Well, he did say, what well, perhaps on Thursday he should roll it to, for next Monday. Well, that's the same. That's, that he haven't gained anything. There's no difference whether the Tzibur have to wait for the beginning of the Kirsatur or the end of Kirsatur. But really, I don't think it's it's significant. The, the rolling of... Uh, from one etc. to the next is uh, is not significant. It's only on partial scrolling because of late plug. We generally you have the minute to switch to to have two secretaria. Um, someone's pointing out we that you find the lower boy filled with a lot of hair. Um, yes, de definitely that you should be maintaining the lower boy. If you are, I mean, it's important that the lower boy should be maintained. And that means from time to time, you lift the manhole and you check what's going on there. You can find hair, you can sometimes find dirt also, which finds its way there. Um, you can use a vacuum cleaner to, to clean it out. And another thing is important, don't ask me details, but there's something called Legionnaire's disease, which affects water which is staying in one place. 
the way to control it with, is with some kind of chemicals, whether it's chlorine or something. Of course, you have to maintain the Beirhatachtun, but I'm not talking about maintaining, I'm talking about exchanging the water, which is a much bigger job of emptying it and having a, a reservoir and etc. etc. Uh, Rabbi Yomin is pointing out, surely taking using two sforim takes more time than a short rolling, an extra hagba. Yeah, that's the one we're looking at. Meanwhile, you have another guy, you can, you can sell hagba to another person. Um, it's another kibbutz. Um, and, and meanwhile, it's, it's how do you say, it, it, it's a tumult. You, you, you read the sikhs when the Rebbe talks about, when you take out three sforim, and amathagans a tumult. Instead of doing it discreetly, you can make, a, you know, um, we're doing another parasha. It, 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 it deserves to have a bit of tumult about a bit of, bit of noise. Okay, let's move on. Okay. Um, so the next thing we have is about selling stuff on your website. If you have a website which is selling stuff, it's must you close your website for Shabbos. So before websites were invented, there were vending machines. And the question was, well, if I had a vending machine in in a train station and it sells cigarettes, um, chocolate, whatever it may be, candies, am I allowed to have my, my vending machine on there on Shabbos? This is addressed in the Sefer Charles Shuvas Maharshag. He was a Robin Sombateri in Hungary pre-war. And he says that's okay. Um, the reason is that you're selling a product whether the people buy the product before Shabbos or on Shabbos or after Shabbos doesn't matter to you. Therefore, he doesn't see that as, as uh, trading on Shabbos. It's, uh, it's available. So I tell you, that's his... his, his uh, um, now let's come to, the, to the, uh, the website. The websites are even less than a vending machine. If, it's, if you, let's say, you're selling furniture. So what's the chart? Your, your website is like a post box. You have a post box where people can drop in an order and you'll fulfill the order after Shabbos. So the website is also like a post box where people can put in an order. That, that should be okay. It says that there are machmir, yeah, it's recommended to be machmir to close down completely on Shabbos. But in, in essence, um, it's if it's just a post box to where orders are, are arriving, that would be okay. There are different, there's a different type of, of uh, website which sells information, sells music, um, uh, whatever it may be, but it's charging for the uh, browsing. It's making money on the browsing now. That's a different story. That's a bit worse because you are now charging money for Shabbos time. And that's besides the Indian of, of um, of sales on Shabbos, you have here an union of schar Shabbos. You, let's say you wouldn't be allowed to charge rent for Shabbos alone. Uh, how do you have a hotel open on Shabbos? So you, it's included in the package, also the sheets and the food, etc. But if you had an item, just, uh, just the item itself, whether it's a, a property or a um, portable thing, doesn't matter. You're not allowed to charge money for Shabbos time, and therefore you wouldn't be allowed to um, have an. You wouldn't be allowed to operate an internet station which is um, providing a service which is charged for the time on Shabbos. 
There's another interesting thing, which is more complicated, is when you have uh, any any um, purchase which goes through you, if any of your users goes and buys of the purchase by a third party, you will get a commission. That becomes uh, um, also, it becomes a bit problematic because it could be an issue of Obschar Shabbos. If you are making money by the fact that people are using you or as a, as a conduit to get to something else, that could be a question which is beyond our discussion for today. Let's move on. Um, another thing which is question eight, uh, buying stuff on eBay. So to buy something where the sale is going to happen on Shabbos, so Rukhivega and others are of the view that you wouldn't be allowed to have a sale happening on Shabbos, even though you're doing nothing. This is in the uh, comes into the discussion about when Erev Pesach is on Shabbos, can you do a Mechiras Chometz on Friday that it should actually kick in on Shabbos? So Kivega holds that's not allowed because you're not allowed to have um, a, you're not allowed to have a, a purchase happening on Shabbos, even though you're doing nothing. In the uh, Marshag, he quotes the Kiva Ega, talks about a property which is up for auction, and the you, you, people put in their bids, and the executive management of the of the of that property will have their meeting on Shabbos, and whichever bid is successful will have bought it. So he says that you have a, you have a problem because effectively, if you win the bid, you've bought on Shabbos. So putting in a bid on eBay, and it's going to complete on Shabbos, so then that would be a problem. Now, I, 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 I don't remember if I've ever used eBay. There's the other way around, selling stuff on eBay. So again, you don't designate the final day of Shabbos. But there's apparently another option of the buyer buying it now and shortcutting, not having to go through the auction. That does raise an interesting question because then they could be buying from you on Shabbos, but then perhaps there's no difference to the uh, to the vending machine, which if they choose to buy on Shabbos, but you haven't, you, you put it up for sale, they can do it earlier or later. So possibly that's not a problem. Okay, um, difficult stuff. Okay, so now, because this past week in the Rambam of three days, uh, three prokim a day, we uh, were learning about brachas on food. So someone sent me a question. There's the idea when you've got a mixture of foods. So if you have a preference, which is the main one, which is the subsidiary one, then you make the bracha on the main one. So if you have an egg and avocado salad, so you're going to have to, um, to consult with your nefesh abamis, which is the main thing, the avocado or the, or the egg. And therefore, you'll make a decision whether it's basically an egg salad with a bit of avocado to flavor it, and therefore it's shahako, or it's an avocado salad, but you've got a bit of egg to flavor it, and therefore it's brocha, that salad is hoheit. So that, that, that's all right. And then if you, if your nefesh abamis doesn't give you enough information, so then you go according to the majority. The roiv will decide what the majority in component, and that will decide what brocha it is. Um, exception to both of these, is that when they're in the mixture, there is mazonus. And mazonus mostly, unless it's there just for holding stuff together, like in gefilte fish, etc. Um, but if it's mazonus is there for taste, um, and then for the taste, for texture, whatever, for taste, let's keep it for taste, yeah? So then, the, even though it's a minority component, the broch is mazonus. 
So now he, uh, <clears throat> this fellow writes to me, uh, he remembers that in um, around Tofshin Nemzayan, no, sorry, Tofshin Nunzayan, possibly, there was a tragic case in Crown Heights that a, an elderly Bocha by the name of Shloimer was murdered. Uh, I think it was a Shabbos even. And in his memory, they established Sudas Shloimer in 770. And Sudas Shloimer makes a big challenge every, um, in honor of every Shabbos. And there are many people in 770 who don't necessarily have a home to go to. So he's his tough shin name of told. So, okay. And Shloyma Fishman, his name was. Thank you. And um, so they, they made this uh, this challenge. And um, Rabbi Marlow was the rob at the time. And incidentally, someone pointed out to me that Rabbi Marlow's Yorzak, but this was just this past week on Chof um, Sivan. So Rabbi Marlow has ruled that the challenge is Mazinus. Now, interesting how things um, evolve. So someone sent to me a message that there was something more to it. Because, you know, when you make Kiddush, you have to have Kiddush B'mokim Suda. Kiddush B'mokim Suda uh, would normally mean that you have some cake or some, some crackers or something. It has to be B'mokim, or you're going to have a Revius of Yain. But Rav Marlo was, was, was interested that the Cholent itself should be Mazinus. Therefore, that's B'mokim Suda. That, so at any rate, so he, Rav Marlo had said that that Cholent was Mazinus. Um, Why was so this is our, our, our question. Why is the child Mazinus? So the question presented to me was possibly it was because of the Kishka. Now, Kishka, for uh, um, those who are not sure what it is, it's like a long sausage kind of uh, body, which is uh, a tube or sleeve, perhaps, stuffed with some kind of um, mixture with flour and something else. Don't ask me any other ingredients. The only thing I do in the kitchen is eat and, and bench. Um, fine. So that's what the kishka is made of. It's a mazonas thing. It's put into the chol in its sausage form. Um, but I, I, I didn't feel that that's considered mixed in to be able to dominate and the end to, um, to define the broker for the chol. The chol is made of beans and potatoes. And you've got a, a sausage sitting in it, which is clearly separable. And now um, on the bottom of your screen, you have here um, from the dinim of Boiler. Now, let's say on Friday night, you wanted to take out a lump of meat from the chont because you want it not to disintegrate, perhaps, whatever it may be. It's not a problem of Boiler. So if you had, let's say, the opposite, if it was, let's say, a goulash, and you'd start picking out another piece of meat, another piece of meat, and put it into another container. If you do that Friday night, not because you want to eat it now, but because you want to keep it for later, that's it, sort of bayre. Because even taking food from food, if it's for the man, if it's for delayed use, it comes into this sort of bayre. But if it's a large chunk of meat, which is not mixed in, it's not, it's 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 clearly standing standing apart. Then just take out that large chunk of meat from the chunk to put it aside, is not a problem of boira. So the boira means the opposite of Atarovus. It was in a mixed up state and now you're separating it. So therefore, on that on that basis, I'm looking at this kishka sitting in the child. Um, I'm just I'm using my imagination. I haven't looked into the pot directly, 
I'm sorry, but this was not the Metzias. The Metzias oh. was not was done like uh, like oh. a kishke kishke. This a kishke b'shem emushal. This was poshet a kugel or what? This was uh, ah, it was mixed. mixed. This was oh. mixed to the whole song. Oh, oh. So now, oh, it's for shaping yet. Okay, thank you, thank you, Reb Taryag. Um, so he's saying that the, actually the kishka was well mixed into the chant. If that is the case, then it makes sense why it was um, uh, why it made the whole chant mazonas. I had thought of a different a different uh, explanation that the chant would have barley grains, and barley grains, although a whole barley grain is um, is very priadomo, but once it becomes mushed and sticky, etc. Um, so contemporaries for him say. Uh, that makes it mazonas. So I was thinking that perhaps if if it, uh, instead of the um, the kugel, the the kishka being the uh, factor to make it mazonas, it was the um, the barley. But all right, thank you for clarifying that. So long as so if it was well mixed in, then obviously it does become makes the whole thing mazonas. Uh, even though probably you could pick up a chunk of uh, um, this kishka separately. But it's since it's well mixed in, it'd probably be similar to what I said about the goulash meat being well mixed in, and therefore that is called a tarovis and makes the whole thing back to the um, um, kishka would make the whole thing mezainous. Right. One last thing, and that is um, we had this discussion about Baruch Hashem answering Amen after Baruch Hashem Le'olam. So one of our listeners, and it was since a recording, so he's in this position, he often davens in the non Chabad Shul, and um, till now he has been saying Baruch Hashem. I'm sorry, has been answering Amen. Does he have to do Hatoras Nadarim for if he wants to stop? So here I told him that you don't need to. You have in Shukhanoruch and the Dinim of Nadarim about Aminik Toiv. So if you had done so, if you're being and that's Aminik Isur, you've been avoiding something consciously. Um, if you didn't really, you had partially made a mistake, you thought it's also, and now you found out that it isn't also, it's just that people don't do it. Oh, but yeah. So, so then you are allowed to stop without Hatosh Nadorim. Second opinion says you should do Hatosh Nadorim. Ramor, the Paskins, Vahminikiswara So basically, the point here is that if you um, have been doing something which you're worried about a neighbor, but if you're doing it on the illusion, that, that is the halacha, and now you realize that the halacha is not so, so then you don't need to have to change your practice. Two other things came in about this. So someone sends me from, from Florida that Rabbi Citron, who is actually in LA, uh, once asked Zalma Shimon about the Omen of Baruch Hashem Yoilon, and Zalma Shimon had advised him that if you take the Baruch of Hashkiveinu and say it slowly, until he hasn't finished Hashkiveinu, when they finish Baruch Hashem Le'olam, this way he doesn't have to worry about uh, answering Amen. Um, I guess for Rabbi Sitrin, that is a, a good solution. Many of us uh, don't daven as slow as that. And so that won't necessarily solve our problem. The other uh, reference I was given is to the memoirs of the late Model Schusterman. And he had his print shop somewhere in the Brownsville or whatever it was. And when his father passed away, he would down at the Omid in a local show, which is an Ashkenaz show. So in the winter, I guess, 
so he uh, go there and they would he was discussed with the Rebbe and um the Rebbe said if you daven in that shul you should follow their nosach um but Baruch Hashem Le'olam in Mayriv is a problem and you should ask her of what to do about Baruch Hashem Le'olam so Rabbi Shustman says to the Rebbe I mean I'm here I mean why should I go to Rob I'm right here you can you can answer me so the Rebbe says ask her of so it looks like the Rebbe didn't want to uh, give him a psak what to do. And he worked out that one of the Mispalalim would, um, one of the other Mispalalim would finish off Baruch Hashem aloud, and then he would say the Kaddish. And uh, I was told that, that one of the Rabbonim in Edgware also, also advised Lubavitch guys having his, in his Beshul that they should do something similar. And his, his uh, background to that was that just like Chabad don't say Baruch Hashem Yoyalam, the Vilna Goen also is of the opinion of the Sibar Shemuel and uh, that would be the same advice that you'd, um, if you're a chazan and a non Chabad shul, so we actually we're skipping to, from one thing to the other. One is about answering Amen, the other one, if you as a chazan should say Bar Shemuel so you should try not to, um, because of it, Altheba holds it's Shash um, Hefzik, etc. And about the Amen, that was what remains that it is a concern of Shash Hefzik. Um, and therefore, um, try to avoid uh, answering it. And uh, so that's what we have for tonight. And I wish you all a good Shabbos. And thank you all for participating. And uh, we should meet in good health. Altif.